Well, the Christian life is one that ought to be marked with humility. 1 Peter 5.5 directs us, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. In fact, God is more than opposed to pride. He hates it. Proverbs 6, 16 and 17 says, There are six things which the Lord hates, yes, seven which are an abomination to him. And guess which one is the first on the list of that list of hatred? It is pride. Pride. Yet James 4.10 says, Humble yourselves in the presence of God, and he will exalt you. And so what is humility? Well, if we were to consider the definition or sort of the picture painted in Philippians 2.3, it regards humility as a mindset that resists selfishness and conceit and regards others as being more important than self. More generally, it is a low view of one's own importance. But with regard to Christianity, true humility is a right understanding of who we are as sinners in light of God's own perfect majesty. Pride says, I'm so great, but humility says, God is great. See, pride exalts the self and functionally denies the truth that we lack righteousness and thereby need God's mercy. But humility acknowledges the soul's own bankruptcy and desperate need for God's grace, which is why Jesus promises in Luke 14, 11, that everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Yet because of our selfishness and sinfulness, pride dies hard. So it is for many Christians today, so it was for Jesus' own disciples. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. Jesus and his disciples are traveling south, headed to Jerusalem, where the Lord intends to go to the cross to atone for the sins of his people. Way back as early as Matthew 18, we stumble onto uh, an in-house debate among the disciples who are arguing about which one of them is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus overhears their debate and their discussion, and he responds to them by saying, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And in saying this, he's talking about their humble dependence on God, not spiritual pride. After all, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And then, really, as we're moving through Matthew's narrative here, we encounter a rich young ruler who assumed that his own self-righteousness and morality qualified him for heaven, only to walk away dejected because he himself was idolatrous. He, he loved his possessions more than he loved the Lord. And seeing all of this played out before them, the disciples, again, they're sort of wondering within themselves, well, what would they receive for their sacrifices? And while Jesus does promise them a reward, he cautions them against spiritual pride in chapter 19, verse 30. He says, but many who are first will be last and the last first. And so up is down in the kingdom of heaven. And then beginning in chapter 20, Jesus offers a parable of laborers in a vineyard, which we looked at last time. And on the parable, some of the laborers, they became jealous of other laborers because the landowner chooses to pay them all equally the same wage, regardless of the hours worked. However, there's a greater lesson to be learned, and we saw this last time. It has to do with the graciousness of the landowner. 
And the parable is placed here to, once again, caution the reader, caution the hearer against entitlement and against spiritual pride. We are saved not because of our merits or because of our worth. We are saved because God is merciful to us. That is the basis of salvation. It is not our own righteousness. It is the righteousness of Christ. He saves us for his own good pleasure, but it does not come without cost. Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 17. As Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside by themselves, and on the way he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him, and on the third day he will be raised up. Now, this is the third time in Matthew's gospel that Jesus predicts his own death and resurrection. But each time he does this, the prophecy becomes more specific in its details. He includes more information as he continues to tell them. Way back in Matthew 16, 21, we read him say, From that time, Jesus began to show the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised up on the third day. Of course, when Peter hears, Here's this prediction. He balks at the Lord and he says, God forbid it, Lord. He says, this will never happen to you. How does Jesus respond to that? He says, get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on God's interest, but on man's interest. But here we see the disciples bristling at this prediction. Why? Why do they oppose this prophecy? Because they could only conceive of a Messiah who was successful and not of a Messiah who would suffer. A little later in Matthew 17, 22 and 23, Jesus repeats the prediction. He says, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he'll be raised on the third day. Again, at that point, nobody dared to oppose Jesus But their response, the text says, they were deeply grieved. They didn't say anything, but they were just sullen and sad and upset when they heard that he was going to go and die. Of course, they always seem to forget that he's going to rise again. And I've been, I was thinking about that this week, if what they were actually thinking about. Maybe they thought it was some sort of a spiritual rising, or maybe his name would rise, but I don't think they really understood what exactly he was talking about. Clearly not. But by the time we get to chapter 20 here, they're within days of arriving in Jerusalem, and Jesus utters this prediction again one last time. He tells them in verse 17 that they're about to go to Jerusalem. Of course, we know from verse 29 that they are still in the city of Jericho, approximately 23 miles from Jerusalem, so not very long of a travel. A couple days you could do it on foot without, without hurrying. But he seizes on this opportunity while in Jericho to pull the 12 disciples away from the larger group. There's always many other disciples around, but Jesus is focusing primarily on the 12. He's been preparing for what's coming, and he tells them about this ahead of time so that they wouldn't panic when it happens. He tells them again, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. At this point, it's inevitable. He says, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes. He's already told them this information before. But this title, Son of Man, is a, it's Jesus' favorite title for himself. It's a messianic title from Daniel chapter 7. And he reiterates that he will be delivered to the members of the Jewish Sanhedrin, which is the chief priests and the scribes. And then he offers some more clarifying details, things he hadn't included before, 
He says, in terms of the upcoming trial at the end of verse 18, he says, this trial is going to result in Jesus being condemned to death. It wasn't he was just going to go and get killed somehow. He would be condemned by this group of people. And then in verse 19, he elaborates even further. He notes that he would be handed over to the Gentiles. Now, this is the first time he had mentioned the Gentiles' connection to his own death. Up to this point, it was only the Jewish Sanhedrin. Now he brings the Gentiles in. It's very easy, especially over the course of, of, histor- of history and of, of uh, just remembering the events, it's easy to go after Israel and say, oh, the Jews killed Jesus. No, the Jews and the Gentiles. In other words, representation of the entire world. We killed Jesus Christ on the cross. He says, well, he's going to be handed over to the Gentiles, and once he's in their custody, they will mock and scourge and crucify the Lord of glory. You have to marvel at the specificity of this. When you read Matthew chapter 26 and Matthew chapter 27, you see that Jesus predicts every single major event with perfect sequence here, even the manner of his torture and death. Now, we read this and we look back and say, well, obviously that happened that way. But if you're in real time here and he's saying, I'm going to get brought in front of these people, in front of the, the, the Sanhedrin, and delivered to the Gentiles, and scourged, and mocked, and crucified. I mean, he's getting very specific about what's about to happen to him. And so nothing is left to chance here. All of it is happening according to the divine plan of God. And then comes the most remarkable part of the prediction. He says, on the third day, he will be raised up, again referring to his bodily resurrection. Now, we know, and they would come to realize how Jesus would accomplish salvation. It was through this. Jesus does not go to the cross as a martyr for some kind of religious or political cause. He goes to the cross to offer a sacrificial offering to satisfy the wrath of God over sin. He pays our transgressions in his own blood, and then he resurrects to accomplish the gift of everlasting life to believers. In this way, his physical death becomes our spiritual death, and his physical resurrection becomes our spiritual resurrection. But it also serves as a prototype of our future bodily resurrection as well. And so all of the Christian life, from conversion all the way to future resurrection, is centered on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, in the wake of all of this and this interaction, Jesus is approached by some very familiar friends with a very specific request. Look with me at verses 20 to 24 now. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and one on your left. But Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, my cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And hearing this, the 10 became indignant with the two brothers. Now, at this point in the gospel record, we see that this problem is getting worse 
and worse for the disciples, the issue of spiritual pride. And you can see every single rebuke is not having its effect on their hardened hearts. Here, Matthew records in verse 20 that the mother of the sons of Zebedee comes to Jesus with a request. Now, we know that the sons of Zebedee are Jesus' own two disciples, James and John. They're some of his closest companions. As for their mother, we know that her name is Salome, which we get from Mark 15, 40. Now, normally, something like this, approaching this rabbi in this way, would have been inappropriate for her. It was against social custom for this woman to approach the rabbi with such a direct request. But it's also believed that Salome might have actually been the sister of his mother Mary, which would make Salome Jesus' aunt, and by virtue would make James and John his cousins. That's one theory, and there might be something to that. And so it very well could have been that she felt comfortable approaching Jesus, her nephew, with this request. However, according to Mark 10.35, it is actually James and John who are the ones to come to Jesus with the request. This has led scholars to conclude that the request is actually coming from the two sons, the two brothers here, and they have simply roped their mother in, and they are trying to get farther along thinking that Jesus will listen to her and not necessarily to them. And so the request might not seem so self-serving if it's coming from their mother, After all, who could say no to Auntie Salome, right? And so she comes with her sons and bows down in respect to make her request, and then she makes it. Verse 21, he said to her, what do you wish? And she said to him, command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and one on your left. Now, to be clear, the Lord wants us to come to him. It's not bad that she approaches him with a request. Remember back to Matthew 7, 7, he tells the disciples, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you'll find, knock and it will be opened to you. So Jesus wants us to go to him with our requests. And frankly, friends, we're allowed to go to him with anything that we want. Now, we have to be careful here because James talks about, it's interesting, it's a different James who writes this, but for those who ask with selfish motives, there's a lot of problems with that, certainly. We don't want to uh, uh, really uh, launch ourselves and, in, 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 uh, what's the word I'm looking for from First Timothy? Um, pierce ourselves, really, uh, with a pang. We don't want to uh, indict ourselves with our own selfishness here. But we are called to Uh, to ask the Lord and to seek him and to knock on the door. So Jesus has no problem with our asking. However, this request, this request is over the top. So what is she asking for? She's asking for her two sons, James and John, to sit on his right and on his left in the kingdom. This is the idea here that Jesus is going to be enthroned. Now, she has correct theology. She identifies him as Messiah who will sit on a throne, so she's got that right. But the idea that James and John would be seated on either side of his throne, sharing in his power and prestige. She's asking for her two sons to be exalted to the utmost highest place of honor next to the Messiah. You have to see, this is a pretty, this is a big ask. This is large. Now, I don't believe this is, this is coming out of left field here. Based on the events of the last two chapters, we see this growing, don't we? There seems to be this ongoing debate, an ongoing angling for position by the different disciples. 
Keeping in mind here that the disciples, they have given up their homes and their businesses and their financial security and even their family to follow Jesus. Why did they give all this up? Because they believe that he is the Messiah. But you can almost imagine the different conversations happening over dinner here. I mean, you got to think about this. Someone walks into town, you identify him as the Messiah, you leave everything and you begin to follow him for the next three and a half years. What does your family say? What do your parents say? What do your friends say? And maybe the conversation at their table was Zebedee talking to his sons. You know, boys, I really could use some help in the catch this year. I'm not getting any younger. And then Salome might have piped in, Zebedee, they're, they're following the Messiah, don't you know? He handpicked them. Well, okay, I, I know, but just make sure he takes care of you boys. Make sure that you're not giving up absolutely everything to follow him. Make sure that this is the right thing. So again, these are real men making real sacrifices, and there's something in all of us that says, boy, this better be worth it. That's how we, how we sort of do this in our humanness. Even there, the Matthew 19, 27, the Peter comes to Jesus and he says, we've left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? What do we get for giving up everything to follow you, Lord? Now, Jesus had promised them a kingdom family and he promised them a heavenly treasure. He even promises the disciples that they're gonna go sit on 12 thrones and judge over all of Israel. And so James and John, hello, they each had a throne here. And yet that's not good enough for them. They want to sit on the two thrones that are closest to Jesus and being magnified and elevated among over all the disciples. And so in their minds, it's this. Look out, Moses and Elijah, because now the sons of thunder plan to be with Christ on the next mountain. That's what they're asking for. How does Jesus respond? Now, I, I brace for impact sometimes when I read the Bible because I'm thinking, you guys are going to get it. Verse 22, you do not know what you're asking. That is the understatement of the year, isn't it? These two young men, they were clueless. They really didn't know what they were asking for. But then he says, are you able? Notice how he tests this now. He doesn't say, are you guys worthy of being with me in heaven, on my throne with me? Does he ask that way? No, he goes a different way. He says, are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink. What is he talking about here? Well, the cup is a metaphor. Well, in the Bible, it can be a metaphor for uh, spiritual blessing, but most of the time when you see this notion of a cup, it's, it's connected to something negative. In Psalm 75, God is pictured as a just judge pouring out wrath on the boastful and the wicked. And the psalmist writes here in Psalm 75, 80, he says this, For a cup is in the hand of the Lord, and the wine foams. It is well mixed, and he pours out of this. Surely all of the wicked of the earth must drain and drink it down to its dregs. Or Isaiah 51, 17, sees the unrighteous Jerusalem says, You who have drunk from the Lord's hand the cup of his anger, the chalice of reeling you have drained to the dregs. 
or even Jeremiah 25, 15, which pictures the people, again, under judgment, staggering around as though drunk because they have drunk from the cup of the wine of God's wrath, is what he says. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus contemplates what he is about to endure on the cross, it's not the mockery from the crowd that worries him. It is not the scourging and ripping off the flesh from his back that scares him. It's not even the horrors of crucifixion that terrify him. No, he is sweating drops of blood in agony because he knows that while he's on the cross, he would receive the full weight of God's wrath against sinners. All of God's anger and fury that have been built up over thousands of years because of human sins, all of it at the same time would be poured out completely on Jesus and he would be utterly crushed to death under God's condemnation. This is the one thing that terrifies Jesus is the thought of having to drink from the full cup of God's wrath, which is why he pleads with the Lord in Matthew 26, 39. He says, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. He knows that the only way to save us from our sins is to drink the full cup of our own destruction through God's wrath to drink it all himself. That's the only hope we have. And yet he says, not as I will, but as you will. He submits himself to the divine will to drink the full cup of the wrath of God himself. And it was, as was God's will, for Jesus to receive the full weight of his wrath. That when James and John, when they ask to be seated in the highest place of honor, he asks them, are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Because without, without that, there's no salvation. He's basically saying the reason I'm going to go and sit on the throne is because I'm drinking the full cup of God's wrath. Are you prepared to do that? How do they respond? Without missing a beat, they say, oh, we're able. Can you fathom the audacity of this? It's clear that they don't know what they're asking. Furthermore, they clearly have no idea about what Jesus is about to do. They know he's going to go to the cross, but they don't know why, really. They don't understand that he is about to be delivered over, condemned, mocked, scourged, crucified, and that's not even the worst of it. Jesus is about to drink the full cup of God's wrath down to the dregs, even the little flecks of grain on the bottom of the cup, the entire thing he's about to drink completely so that not even a drop would be ingested by the believers. None of us receive any of God's wrath when we stand before his judgment if we are in Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ, Romans 8.1. So we oftentimes, I think, get this wrong. We think that we have to somehow atone for our own sins or pay for our own sins or if I'm not careful, God's gonna come down and he's gonna judge me. Now, make no mistake, believers, God will chasten you. 
And God will give you the consequences, the earthly consequences of your sins in this life at times. But for those who belong to him, for those who actually have received the, the, the death, burial, resurrection, the benefits of the cross on themselves and to themselves, we receive none of this. We receive no wrath from God. And you, you should praise him for that. Jesus Christ will satisfy the complete and full wrath of God. That's called propitiation. That's why 1 John 2 calls him the advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. What does he mean? He means that Jesus satisfies the wrath of God for every believer who's ever lived anywhere in the world. Who else could do that? Nobody. Nobody but the Son of God himself. Which is precisely why, why Jesus is so highly exalted by the Father. Because he's able to satisfy his wrath. Because he's able to redeem the loss. Because he's able to be our righteous advocate. We have no righteousness inherently. But God has all righteousness. And he gives up that righteousness for us. He takes on Jesus himself, all the penalty. He takes our unrighteousness and then wraps his own righteousness around us like a garment. That is called the imputation of Christ's righteousness. We receive the benefits of his perfect life even though we have done nothing to deserve it. It's a miraculous gift. And yet when they asked, when he asked if they could drink the cup of the wrath of God, they foolishly and pridefully quipped, we are able. It's clear that they had been drinking. They were drunk on their own ego. They were prideful. That's what that is. And they had been prideful. But notice what Jesus says. He doesn't take them down. He could have spiritually chopped off their heads. I mean, he really could have gone at them over this. This could have been a get-behind-me-Satan moment. He's relatively metered here. Look at verse 23. He said to them, My cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Notice that even though they confidently assert that they are able to drink his cup, he actually affirms that they will drink his cup. Not the cup of divine wrath, mind you. Only Jesus will do that. But they will share in the cup of his sufferings to come. All of the disciples suffered under intense persecution. In fact, James would later become the very first of the twelve to be martyred and killed for his faith. That's Acts chapter 12, verse 2. And his brother John would actually outlive all of them well into his old age, possibly even into his late 90s, but he would die after decades of persecution and he would die in exile. And so, yes, they both drank from the cup of Christ's sufferings. And so when he says, you will drink from my cup, they did. They did. Furthermore, every Christian who was persecuted for the cause of Christ is sharing in the sufferings of Christ, which is why the Apostle Paul says in first, excuse me, Colossians 1.24, in my sufferings, I do my share on behalf of his body in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. 
It doesn't mean that Christ's afflictions are not enough, but what he means here is every single time a believer suffers affliction and persecution for the name of Christ, it's as though it was being done to Jesus. When they kill us around the world, when they persecute us, they mean to persecute Jesus. We're just the one that are, that are standing there that they see. But if Jesus had spent the last 2,000 years on earth, you've got to believe every single day of his life, somebody would be trying to kill him. And so we, because we are the body of Christ, we endure the cup of his sufferings regularly. Now, he, people don't always kill us, even though they kill us often. Read the, the, if you read Fox's Book of Martyrs, it's just page after page after page of those being killed for the faith. But every time someone curses you, every time, somebody, every time somebody mocks you and laughs in your face about your faith and spurns your convictions, your biblical convictions, it's as though they are spurning and mocking Christ. He says, you will suffer my cup and all of us will suffer with him. But to this request, to sit at my right and my left, he says, that's not something I can do. Why? Because only the Father can exalt a person. Only the Father can bring up to glory. Not even the Son of God exalts himself. This is why Jesus prays in John 17, 1, Father, glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. The Son never exalts himself while he's on earth. He never puffs himself up and says, look at me, look how, how marvelous and how glorious I am. He could have. He has the right to. He's God. But he never does it. He always yields to the Father. And we know that he does this. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9, For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven, and on the earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. <clears throat> and so the Father glorifies the Son. The Father exalts the Son. And Jesus himself, he says, the Father is the one who can exalt and place in glory. I'm not going to do that. Of course, it doesn't take long before the other disciples, they hear about what the brothers are trying to do, they catch wind of it. Verse 24, and hearing this, the ten become indignant with the two brothers. Yet we have to ask, why are the disciples so angry? I mean, think about it. Say one of us or two of us tried to go and angle for better position. The rest of us could have very easily been like, well, knock yourself out. Good luck with that. But why are they so angry? Why do you think? Ready? One word. Jealousy. They're mad because they beat them to the punch. They all believe that they deserve to sit in that place. And you have to believe. Remember, when, when Jesus brings Peter, James, and John up on the mountain of transfiguration, what does he say when they're about to get down? He says, don't tell anybody about this. Why? Lots of reasons in terms of his eschatological future, his, his salvation plan. But I think there's even a, a more subtle reason don't tell the other disciples because I'm doing this for you because I choose to. But they, they would have been caught up in pride. We went up the mountain. You guys didn't. Right? Don't we do that? 
But they were just as prideful as James and John. And given the opportunity, they all would have done the exact same thing. I want my future throne to be the one next to yours, Lord. They all believed that they were the greatest in the kingdom. That's why they were fighting about it. But remember Jesus' words. The first shall be last, and the last first. The way to be great in God's eyes is not to assert yourself, to seek praise, to build yourself up, or to elevate yourself above other people. That's not the way to do it. In our pridefulness, we do that, though. In our pridefulness, we one-up each other. We put other people down. We do things in hopes that other people will see. We want to get caught doing a good thing, don't we? That's how pride works. We brag to other people about our spiritual accomplishments. And yet we're so good at hiding how we're bragging. False humility. False piety. Bragging about our our Bible study. Well, you know, this morning when I spent two hours in my Bible, don't we play those silly games sometimes? Our Bible memorization. We want to be the first to rattle off the whole verse before someone else does. Our prayer life. Oh, I didn't answer your text because I was busy praying all morning. We play these games. We do these things. Or maybe it's our spiritual experiences. Or maybe it's our service. Or our generosity. Or our sacrifice. Friends, there's a reason we don't pass a plate. There's a reason it's in the back, so that you and the Lord work that out. Whenever someone comes to me as a pastor, and they tell me about something good they do for somebody else, I always get really nervous for them. The first thing in my mind is, oh, there goes your reward. Seriously. Why? Because Matthew 6, 3, when you give, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Don't blow a trumpet, Jesus says, because your father sees what is done in secret and he will repay you. Trust that when you give and serve and do and build relationship with him and grow and die to self, when you do the right thing before God and before others, that God will see what you're doing. God sees what's going on. He sees what you're doing. So store up treasure in heaven. Store up praise in heaven. Store up honor and glory in heaven. Not that we deserve glory, but that God will reward based on that. Trust him. Because the the high fives and the back slaps and the good job brother, good job sister, all of that is not really worth anything. It's good for the ego, but it's not good for your eternal soul. And so be humble. Be lowly. How do you do that? You consider yourself to be last among other people. You say and you believe, I am not the greatest one here. I am not God's gift to this church. We are all beggars trying to share and tell other people, where to find the food. We are all lowly in God's eyes. And so I would encourage you, serve others with no expectation or regard for recognition or reward. After all, as we're going to see next time, the Son of Man, even Jesus himself, 
did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We serve a humble servant who is worthy of all praise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this heart check this morning. We thank you for this opportunity to examine ourselves. And Lord, we look at the disciples and it's very easy for us sort of in hindsight to, to judge them and to sort of look down our noses and say, oh, they, they didn't understand, they didn't see it. But Lord, we have to admit we wouldn't have seen it either. We would have been just as prideful, maybe even more. And yet, Lord, we know that you oppose pride. You hate our pride. You hate our self-importance and our self-aggrandizement. You hate when we exalt ourselves above other people and squash other people. You hate when we brag. You hate when we boast. All of these things are detestable in your sight. And even when we have feelings of entitlement that we deserve more than we have, you are not pleased with that either, Lord. The Bible's clear. And yet we also know that you, you exalt those who are lowly. You give grace to the humble. You lift us up, as the Bible says, on eagles' wings. You lift us up, Lord, and you carry us. And you encourage our hearts. You tell us to look up. We, we feel down, but we tell, you tell us to look up, to fix our eyes on heaven, to focus on Christ, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. Lord, you, you lift us up. You promise that when we humble ourselves, you, in your time, will exalt us in the manner in which you feel most glorified. So, Lord, I pray I pray on our behalf this morning that we would be humble and lowly and kind and have a servant's heart and a, a loving heart toward other people, that we wouldn't look for opportunities to step on others, but opportunities to lift them up and bless them and give to them and love them dearly. Lord, that we might be examples to a, a watching world of what true humility and godliness looks like. And Lord, what is our example? Oh Lord Jesus, you are our example. You who are worthy of all glory and all honor and all praise. You humbled yourself to the point of death, even death on a cross. You took all of our shame and our guilt and our sin and our debauchery and our pride and pig-headedness. You took all of that and you placed it on yourself and you died and all of the wrath of God that was pouring out like a flood, you drank all of that like a cup. You drank it down to the dregs so that we would not experience even one millisecond of wrath from the Father. What a marvelous gift, O oh Lord, that you would give yourself and serve us so beautifully. Help us, Lord, to see ourselves in the right light and help us, Lord, to see you clearly above all. We thank you for your loving kindness, your grace, and mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.